Good morning. You guys doing all right? Did anybody else have a, did anybody have a good week? Just like a really good week? Did anybody else have a really rough week? Yeah, it's, it, I'm going to be honest. It's, it's been a rough week and um, <clears throat> there, it, you know, there's a lot of things going on uh, in, in our culture, in our world right now. Um, you know, we've, we've got the health crisis, the social crisis, uh, economic crisis, and then just a lot of pain and hurt going on in our church family this week. Um, and, uh, so man, I, I mean, I'm just to be completely honest, I know some of you are watching online. I'm sorry. Uh, but, but it's just been one of those weeks where I almost was just like, man, let's just not, let's just pray this morning. Let's just spend time in prayer. Um, just scrap the sermon. Um, because there are certain things that go on in life that, that it just almost seems like, and, and, and I know this is a, a sinful fault. So this is your pastor confessing. Um, that it almost seems trivial to, for me to get up and preach. Um, and then I'm instantly reminded, like, the Word of God is never trivial. Uh, and it speaks into every situation, and, it, and it's powerful in what we need in every moment and in every situation. And so, uh, so ultimately, we're going to dive into God's Word because that is what all of us need. And um, the gospel is powerful, and it is powerful enough to overcome any brokenness. And what we've been seeing throughout the book of Acts is, is that the gospel has come, the good news that every single one of us is searching for and, and desiring and living for, and, and all of us are seeking it. And Jesus came, and he lived, and he died, and he rose so that we could have salvation in him by grace, by placing our faith in the reality that he has done all the work for us to have everything that we were created to have. And that's good news no matter what's going on in our lives and it's hope no matter what brokenness is happening around us. And we see that being revealed as, as Christ comes and lives and dies and then sends the power of the Holy Spirit. As we just saw in Acts 1.8, that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes as his people. And we'll be his witnesses. We have a purpose. We have a place as his people. We have a salvation and identity in Christ. And we have a mission through him to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we've seen throughout the book of Acts this truth, this promise from God be fulfilled and, and, and revealed uh, through his people. And so today we're going to look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4, going to verse 25. And we'll be there in, in just a moment. But this passage is is really important for us in the life of our church. It's been very informative. It's not typically a passage that you would just go to if you were uh, just picking a text to go to in Scripture. We come upon those a lot here because we typically just go through books of the Bible verse by verse and uh, just allow God to determine the agenda of our preaching and not me or the elders here. Um, but, but this is one that's been, uh, you wouldn't typically go to, but it's very informative and it's really informed us in the way that we work here and see our city and the mission towards our city. And so it's important for us to look at this morning. And, and so Acts chapter eight, uh, while you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. God, thank you so much for, uh, this morning and God, I, I just, I thank you for the opportunity to open your word. God, I thank you for the power of your gospel truth that it, it's the power unto us for salvation. It's the power unto us to have the identity, to know who we are, to, to understand where we belong, and God, what you've called us to and our purpose and why we are living. And God, it, you give us hope in any situation, and you are true through all of eternity. And God, we're thankful that we get to worship you, and we get to sing your praises, and we get to open your word and, and hear from you. And God, this morning, I pray that every single one of us would hear from you that your word would speak directly to our heart. 
And God, we just give you this time, and we pray that you would use it to speak to us in exactly the way that we need to hear from you through your word. And so, God, we love you. We, we lift up the churches of our city, especially, Lord, as your gospel is being proclaimed all over our city this morning. God, I pray that you would add unto your church family, and I pray that you would build up your church body. And God, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning, um, we, we usually have a lot of setup kind of for the text. I'm just going to jump right in this morning. We do need to do a little bit of work uh, before we get to verse 4, looking back at Acts chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 3. Okay, so we, we kind of went over those at the end last week, but I want us to kind of see that again this morning for a couple of minutes just before we get into verse 4, because it kind of sets up what's happening in verse 4. And so last week when we looked at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 8, we saw that even as many are coming to faith, so multitudes of people are coming to faith, the apostles are preaching and teaching, and the, the, all of the people who are coming to, to faith, the disciples, the followers of Christ, they're, they're going out and proclaiming the gospel news, the, the good news of Christ and salvation and life and redemption uh, in him. They're living it out and not only in word, but in deed and action. And, and so many people are coming to faith. But we see even in that there's a lot of persecution. Uh, there's a lot of people who uh, don't desire to, have, to see the salvation that comes in Christ, but to pursue their own salvation. And and many of us are, are very prideful in that. We want to earn our own way. We want to uh, and desire to make our own truths and, and to follow our own hearts and desires. And, and so when surrender is brought into the picture and repentance is brought into the picture and, and grace is brought into the picture, uh, believe it or not, I know it's hard to believe for some of us who are followers of Christ who have been saved by grace and enjoy the freedoms of it and understand the beauty that is therein. It's very difficult and controversial to many people uh, when you proclaim that there is a truth that is outside of your own truth and your own desire and your own heart. And, and sometimes even the things that you think are best for you and swear that you need to pursue those things with all of your life. And that is what your purpose is. And, and, and you have to come to the reality that that will not ever give you what you were created for and long for because you were created to have community with God. And, and, and a lot of times that truth comes up against us and, and that truth is not welcomed in our lives. And in many cases, it'll lead to persecution. But through Stephen last week, we saw that in Christ, we have a truth that's worth living for. And he displays that in the reality that he is worth die, it's worth dying for. And so we see his death and, and we see through his life that the gospel is ultimately everything, that Jesus changes everything, that when he comes into life and he lives and dies and rises, that, that he provides for us everything that we need for life and for salvation and for eternity. See, every single one of us, we want to gain power, but we were actually, we find in Christ created to be connected to the one who is most powerful. Every single one of us wants glory, but we discover in Christ that we were not made to gain some type of glory that we can never actually receive, but we were created to give glory to God. And in giving glory to God, we actually receive the joy, greater joy than we would in receiving our own false glory. We were created to be in community, but in Christ, we discover that the community that we long for but can never seem to find is found in only community with God, which is given to us through Christ and his work. 
Every single one of us wants love and to be known, but we discover in Christ that we can actually be deeply known and truly loved. And only in Christ do we not have to hide because he's done all of the work and we don't have to achieve or accomplish anything. But in Christ, we're saved by grace. And and then we can begin to reveal what is truly worth living for. And we find all of that in the gospel and in the gospel alone. And we ended at the beginning of chapter 8, as we said, with Stephen bearing witness of Christ. And, and God uses his death to take the gospel to Samaria and all of Judea, as we'll continue to see. And he's setting up, through the story of Stephen, the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Through a man primarily who burst onto the scene in scripture last week, who we know as Saul here, but we know as Paul as a follower of Christ who wrote most of the New Testament so that we can know who God is and where we belong and and where we belong and who we belong to and our identity and our purpose and and everything that we find in him. And and he is the one who's actually in charge of or commissioned Stephen's murder, Saul. Now we're going to get to him in the next couple of chapters and and, and, and some of the, the the, some of the, the most exciting chapters in all of the book of Acts. We're not to him yet, but we're going to see that Saul actually is going to come to faith. But at first, he adamantly rejects in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8. We see that he's in charge of Stephen's murder, and all of these men, uh, they lay their, their cloaks at Stephen's feet to stone Stephen, to kill Stephen. And this is typically what they would do. They would take off their cloak, uh, which was extremely important to them and versatile to them. We talked about that uh, before in here. But they would lay it down at, at, at Saul's feet, and then uh, they would stone Stephen to death. And typically what you would do is you would lay your cloak down or your, your most valuable belonging or all that you are at the feet of the one who is in charge. Now, we do this in all of our lives. Every single one of us worships different things, and every single one of us puts something on a throne, and we lay all that we are at the feet of that throne in hopes that this thing will provide for us everything, or this person will provide for us everything that we were created to have and long for. But, but they're honoring their leader and the one that they look to for truth, and we do the same in our lives. We lay ourselves down at the feet of something. And, and here we see that these men are laying their cloaks at the feet, their belongings at the feet of Saul. He's their leader. And, and you kind of see, if you, if you will, this metaphorical throne that, that Saul is sitting on. It's, it's man high and lifted up. You've told us, you have led us, you have declared to us that this is where we belong, that this is what we should do. So we're laying ourselves at your feet, we're doing your bidding, we're doing what we believe to be true because you have told us and you have led us and and he's lifted up and this is what occurs when we lift up the things of man. And we get this imagery though uh, of of two different thrones. We see the throne of man and what the throne of the world brings. But then if you remember last week, we saw Stephen looking up as he's being stoned and sees heaven open and Jesus standing before the throne. And we get this picture of the throne of God 
over all things and powerful over all things and sovereign over all things and Christ standing ready to receive Stephen and Stephen having this complete comfort and peace in everything that is happening in the worst moment of his life because he looks up to Christ and finds everything that he needs and everything he was created for in him and therefore there is nothing that the world can do to add to it or take away from it and we see this imagery of the throne of Christ and where we find life and then we see this imagery of the throne of man and laying their cloaks down before they kill the one who is against them while the one who is in Christ prays for the ones who kill him. You start seeing the difference between when we make thrones and and worship the things of the world and when we worship the things of God and we see him high and lifted up where he belongs as the one who is worthy of all glory. It totally shifts the way that we live. It totally shifts the way that we love because we're not looking for identity in the things of the world. But when we are looking for identity in the things of the world and we make thrones out of things of the world and men of the world, then we will live in fear and we will see everything as a threat to our power. And then we start seeing these types of things play out. See, Saul is leading in the ways of man at this point in his life. He's leading on his accomplishments and his religious beliefs and philosophies and ideologies. And all of those things are built on pride and they're based on man's standards. And they cause the human heart to feel the need to cancel out any opposing view. They're not interested in talking to Stephen or hearing from Stephen even when they see that his face looks like an angel because they see the peace and the grace and the, and the love that he has for them. Even when they see him looking up and praying for them in the midst of his death, they don't want to talk to him. He's a threat to what they think and what they believe. So they place themselves above Stephen. And, and this is what we typically do when we find ourselves in the things of the world. We want power and therefore we place ourselves above others, seeking to rise above the ones with accomplishment that are around us and, and to have different beliefs or better beliefs that we believe are truer than everything else or heritage or performance or, or preferences or holding to cultural norms. And all of these things we try to produce our identity and value in. We find our worth in them. And we do this today as well. And when we find our value and worth in things of the world and trying to gain power and glory for ourselves and all the things that we can only find in Christ, as we talked about at the very beginning just a few moments ago, then we will put others down. We'll, we'll do exactly what Paul and, or Saul, rather, and, and these men do. They try to just cancel out Stephen and his God because they disagree with him. We do the same thing today. We call it a lot of different things, but lately it's, it's been kind of deemed the cancel culture. And this is kind of what we do, and, and it's defined in some different ways, but if you just look it up, this is the definition. See if this fits us at all in our society today. Cancel culture is the social attitude that facilitates the unanimous agreement against, amongst multiple people that somebody is worthy of hate and slander due to controversial belief or behaviors that they engage in. So if somebody disagrees with me, if somebody believes something differently than me, then it's not about actual physical harm. It's just you're harming my belief, my power, my glory, what I find identity and worth in. And and we can't have a, a loving conversation or disagreement or still be close or still be friends and work things through and seek truth and love. But we just want to cancel you out. We just want to deem it as harmful to ourselves. 
And this is exactly what Saul does and his men do. They, they see Stephen as a threat to what they believe. They don't want to dialogue with him, and so they, they slander him. They come up with false witnesses against him. They do whatever they need to do to belittle him and to justify what they do to him. And listen to me, the truth of the gospel, it was controversial then. It's controversial now. This happens with a lot of different things today. But it certainly happens when we place our faith in Christ. And we see it here with Saul and his men. Again, they, they feel that what they believe in their hearts and tradition and cultural uh, beliefs and, and everything that they find their identity and value in is being threatened and therefore is something that needs to be canceled out. That's what places, or that's what happens when we place things of the world or men of the world on the thrones that we worship. It leads to fear. It leads to anxiety. It leads to, to, to power, trying to seek power and control, and, and it leads to ultimately hate. But we see through Stephen the opposite throne, as I said, the throne of heaven where God reigns and is over all things and sustains and delivers us in his grace. And in him we find truth and identity that leads not to pride and to fall or pride into power or pride into hate or pride into dissension and disunity, but humility because I have everything that I have by grace. I am who I am because of the grace of God and his work and not my own. And therefore, it leads to life, and I can love, and I can show grace. And we see that in the life of Stephen. He demonstrates it beautifully as Christ stands before the throne, saying, this is why I died. This is why I sent the power of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is a visual representation of the freedom that you have in me. And we see the representation of, and the enslavement of sin in the thrones of man. That I am full of fear and therefore I'm full of hate because I have no peace, I have no comfort, I have to gain power, I have to gain glory. We see this through these two thrones. And, and Saul here is confronted with the truth. And, and when he is confronted with the truth, you have two different options. You can either follow, repent, and believe, or you can reject. And now you can reject in two different ways, and we're going to see that. We see the first way in Saul. Reject and double down on what you already believe. Double down on self. And, and maybe you've seen that in your life, but then there's another way, and that's the religious way. We're going to see that today in our text through Simon. You reject, but you kind of like what God can do for you. And so there's no transformation of the heart, but, you know, I'll, I'll kind of add him to my life and I'll seek salvation in my own way. But, but I'll use his name and I'll declare that I believe his truth and all of those different kinds of things. And then there's a gospel way. And we're going to see how that plays out in our text today through the life of Philip. But maybe you've experienced what Paul does, doubling down on self. And I've experienced this a lot in my life and it's confused the mess out of me. And still, I kind of came to this conclusion. I saw God actually working through it. But, but some of you have probably invited somebody to church or uh, you have shared your faith with them at work or whatever it may be. And, and they immediately, you think they're open to it. You're having conversation with them. You're really good friends with them, maybe. And, and as soon as you share your faith or you invite them to church, I'll just use the, the church example. You invite them to church. They leave afterwards and they act like they absolutely hated it. I hated everything that guy said. The worship was weird. Like, why are you standing up? Like, nobody sings like that. Like, what was going on? I never want to go back. And they kind of like double down on their disbelief, so to speak. And so 
So they, they, they hate everything that they just experienced. And, and sometimes they actually just walk away from everything and they never want to talk to you about it again. But sometimes, like we see with Saul, it's ultimately God using those things and con- bringing conviction through the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. And, and eventually, they, they just don't like the conviction, but they, they wrestle with it. They think through it. And maybe they distance themselves for a while because they're being worked on in a way that they've never experienced before. And then eventually, God draws them unto himself, and they are saved. We see that in the life of Paul. Now, sometimes they just walk away. This is one of the ways that we reject. We just double down on self. Sometimes we do it religiously, and we'll see that in the text, and then also the gospel way. So Saul, he does not repent and believe. And we see he actually does the opposite of that. He, he tries to destroy everybody in the church. So his persecution of the church, like it exaggerates after Stephen's death. Like something happens in Saul at this point where, where he just starts, it says, ravaging the church. He's going from small group to small group. So it's not like he hears somebody is a Christian and he goes after them and arrests them. No, he's like knocking on doors where he hears that some people gather. And he's pulling them out. And this is what we see in verses 1 through 3, um, that he has this desire to totally destroy everything. And, and remember that he believes adamantly that what he is doing is right and good. And I think just to throw this out, he's a beautiful example for us and proof to us that sincerity of belief and genuine desire to do good isn't always what is right. There's a right that is right and there's a wrong that is wrong. There's a truth that sustains all of eternity and doesn't shift and change with cultures and natural desires. And Saul shows us that. But what's amazing is even when man is not faithful to his creator, God is faithful to his created design and promises. And we see that in his plan that he uses the death of Stephen to take the gospel to the nations. To see the healing of brokenness all around their community begin to, to, to see healing and, and to come to, from brokenness to redemption through the life of believers who are willing to lay at the feet of Christ all that they are. And not to submit themselves to the things of the world. And listen to me, that is the difference between thriving and falling in life. Finding everything that you were created for and hope even in the most desperate of moments. And and building your house on a sand that will fall. The gospel truth, God and who he has created us and designed us to be. and, And placing our faith and everything that we are at the feet of him and his throne is the difference between having everything that we were created to have and a hope in the eternity that we are promised to have in him and falling apart here on earth and 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 absolutely having nowhere to look for the hope that we were created to find in him and in him alone and we see it here as God uses this persecution to bring about his promise and his people it says were scattered in the persecution See, at this point, they were all hanging out in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was, was killing it. Like, people were coming to faith, the church was growing, the church was multiplying, churches were being planted, people are being baptized, people are being sent out, people are being taken care of, problems are being fixed. Like, Jerusalem's church is just exploding, but the issue is God told his people to go all throughout the earth. And it took persecution for that to happen. I pray that doesn't take persecution for it to happen with us. But look what God does through this. I want us to read together 
chapter 8 of the book of Acts, starting in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now we're going to talk about that word preaching. It doesn't actually mean that they were doing what I'm doing right now. Um, It's really the word evangelism. We see it here twice, proclaiming and preaching. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. So all of Judea and Samaria, the Spirit will come with the power to bear witness in these places. Here we go. And proclaiming to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard the word and deed, they saw Philip's actions and they heard Philip's truth. They saw signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And then look at verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. I love that. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Hey, guys, I'm great. I'm good. You should pay attention to me. You should look at me. I need power. I need glory. I've got a throne. I've got a kingdom. I've got to build it. They all paid attention to him. They're placing themselves at his feet for the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached, there's a better news than anything the world has to offer. The good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So it looks like everything is great. Everything is good. Here comes Simon. He's laying himself at the feet of Jesus. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed with them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now that's super interesting because we know throughout Scripture that when you receive Christ, you receive the Spirit. Simultaneous, when you pray to receive Christ or you surrender your life to Christ, the Spirit now lives and dwells in you. But here we see something a little bit different. It's very important. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Verse 16. For he had not yet fallen on them, but they only had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money. He totally doesn't get it. Grace? What? I need to earn it. I I want power. I want glory. So he tries to offer them money saying, give me this power also. He just wants to make his magic show a little bit better. So that any one of them who lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You thought you could earn it. That's not the gospel. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. And then he gives them a chance. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord. See, he totally misses it. He has no relationship with God. He doesn't feel like he can go to God himself. He asked for someone else to do it for him, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. This is Peter and John preaching the gospel to many in the villages of Samaria. Let's pause there just for 
a moment. This is a beautiful text. And going back to verses 4 and 5, here's what we see. As we said, we've seen that the believers have huddled up in Jerusalem, and now God has used persecution to, to scatter them amongst Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We will see in the next few chapters, and in the midst of the persecution, everything that God has, has promised would happen begins to occur. He says some of the, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, right? Because uh, there's something important that, that is happening here, and the apostles need to stay in Jerusalem, even though persecution is happening. But many of the people scattered all through Judea and Samaria, and the mission of the church is beginning to flourish amongst all people. And, and so here's the first thing that I want to say, and this is, this is how it, it really has, has infiltrated the mindset of the mission of Redemption Hill Church. This scattering idea is extremely important in the church. There are small things that we do. We pray for other churches every single week because we believe in the mission of God and collaboration, and we believe that we want gospel saturation in our entire city, and so there's a missional mindset behind praying for other churches every single week. There's a missional mindset behind us saying you are sent at the end of every service because God sends us out in what he has called us to do, and that is extremely important. It's a part of God's plan. <clears throat> A lot of times we think, okay, I've given my life to Christ. I'll just kind of hang out in the church. I'll go to church. I'll be a part of the church. I'll believe in the things of God. <clears throat> and, and we end up being a whole lot more like Simon than somebody who is transformed by the gospel truth. See, the gospel transforms us. Yes, it saves us, but it also transforms us to live on the mission of God. It gives us a new identity, and we desire every single one of us, you know you do, to live out your identity. You're searching for yourself. You're seeking yourself, and you're responding to what you think yourself says you should do. And when you have your identity found in Christ, then what you are seeking and searching in yourself to find is the mission of God. And if you're not on the mission of God, you are not finding yourself and who you really are. So God calls us to two different things. He calls us to the discipleship of one another, the body of Christ but he also calls us to the discipleship of those who do not know Christ, the, the mission that he calls us on. And this is how we feel complete in the, the salvation of God. It's not only to place your faith in him, but it's also to be on the mission that he had called us to. Because that's the mission that we were given by God to find satisfaction in. It's the life that we're called to. To give him glory in all that we do and to live missionally in all that we are. That's how the gospel flourishes among all people, and that's how we flourish in the gospel truth. It's so important. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said it this way, and it's kind of disgusting, but I can't find anything else that really makes the point as well as this does. And he was kind of a smart aleck, so here you go. He said this, Christians are like manure, all right? So congratulations. If all you do is gather them together, they really stink. All right, like I love this analogy. But if you gather it up to scatter it out, it will fertilize and produce much fruit. See, this is the way that the church is. If we're, all we're doing is gathering together, then we never have a mission to the community. We never find verse 8 where, where there was joy in the city because of what the people of God were doing, even if they don't agree with what the people of God are teaching. The mission will not be done. We will not be fulfilled in Christ because we're only participating in salvation and not mission. And, and so we are sent out. We're gathered to scatter. 
so that we go on the mission of God. And we know, as I said, that these are the two sides of what God has called us to do. Now, Philip is the one that God uses to demonstrate this gospel reality and truth to us. And if you remember Philip in Acts chapter 6, he was selected by the church body to minister to the Greek uh, Jews, the Hellenists, um, back in Acts chapter 6, along with Stephen and five others. So he's that Philip. And so he scatters, because he's not one of the apostles, and the apostles stay to worry about the body of Christ in Jerusalem. It's important. Discipleship of the body. The other disciples are sent out because mission is important. Philip's one of those, and he goes straight to the Samaritan people. Now, here's what we need to know about Samaria. Samaria is 40 miles straight north of Jerusalem. It's the ancient capital, actually, of the northern kingdom of Israel. You can read about that in the book of 1 Kings. And what's happening, or what has happened, is right about 700 B.C., the northern part of Israel was captured by the Assyrians. And then something happened with them. Now, the southern kingdom was also captured by the Babylonians. You can read about that in the Old Testament as well. The southern kingdom, though, captured by the Babylonians, some of them kind of assimilated into the Babylonian lifestyle and culture and beliefs and gods and all of that. But for the most part, the Jewish people kind of, uh, they tried to infiltrate the culture. They tried to uh, have influence on the culture, but they held to their traditions and their beliefs. But the northern kingdom and the Jews that lived in the northern kingdom who were captured by the Assyrians, they totally assimilated into the Assyrians. They took on their gods, they took on their traditions, they, they, they married the Assyrian people, which is not bad because of race, but because of faith. And, and this is big all throughout the Old Testament. That God says that we're, in the New Testament, he says we're not to be unevenly yoked, that we marry somebody, it doesn't matter who they are, where they're from, the ethnicity, language, there might be some problems with language if you don't speak it, but that doesn't matter. That's not what God is after. He's after his glory. He's after revealing who he is, Christ and the church and the gospel through marriage and and so it doesn't matter who they are, but that they are followers of Christ who desire to give glory with you to God and all that you do together. So it's not about that, but throughout the Old Testament, you see that God tells the, the Jewish people not to, to intermarry with other people because every different culture had a different God. And the Israelite people were to display the one true God to the nations. And we see what happens is that the, the, the Jews of the northern kingdom, they married in with the Assyrians and they took on their gods and they, they took on their culture. And, and what you have is this brand new people that were created by the, the Jews and the Assyrians. And so when the Jewish people of the south Look at them. What they see are people who are not faithful to God. They see them as traitors. They see them as unfaithful. They see a people who should not even exist if they would have done what God had called them to do. And what happens is, because they're, they're kind of uh, together with the Assyrians and Jews, is no one likes them. They're, they're not a pure race, so to speak. And so everybody around them sees them as kind of the, the ones that they hate the most and want nothing to do with. They are the outcast. And they've got this little place that they live that's 40 miles north of Jerusalem. And, and it's said that there, was all, there were all of these battles. Some of them are actually kind of funny. It's, it's kind of like college dorm rooms just going at each other, like 
Jerusalem and Samaria, and they do these, these crazy things to one another, but they're also extremely brutal to one another. And, and if a Jew needed to travel north, that it's said that they wouldn't even go through Samaria. They would go around it. It would add a day to their journey, but that's how much they did not want to come in contact with a Samaritan. Because the southern Jews, this is basically what had happened. They had drawn a circle or a line around themselves, so to speak, and said, we are the pure people. We're the people that matter most. We've got the most power. We're the, we're the most kind of the people who are the greatest and have the most value. And everybody else is beneath us. And we have the one true God. And they kind of drawn this circle around them. And the Sumerians were definitely outside of that bubble. Anybody else we would let in before we would let the Sumerians in. And, and what we begin to see is through Philip and the gospel scattering is, is what could not happen for centuries and generations happens in an instant when the gospel enters the situation. Because God absolutely bursts racial bubbles. He tells us in the book of Galatians, Paul tells us that there is in Christ neither Jew nor Gentile. It's not about man or woman. It doesn't matter who you are. All can be saved and brought into the unity of Christ and the body of Christ and the family of Christ through his work. So it's not about you. It's about his grace. And that humbles us and causes love to come out of us and grace to come out of us and forgiveness to come out of us. And now we can have unity with the people that God has created in his image to reveal something more beautiful to us of who he actually is than we can when we're just kind of in our own little bubbles. But if we're not finding our salvation in Christ, dissension will occur. And Jesus had already demonstrated this in his life. And now Philip is demonstrating how the power of the Spirit works through us to do this in our lives and in the life of the church. Jesus comes along, and I don't know if you've ever just read the New Testament this way, but he breaks every racial barrier. Specifically with the Samaritans. You remember in John chapter 4 when he goes to the Samaritan woman at the well? He actually talks to a woman, first of all. He talks to a Samaritan woman, second of all. And what he does in this conversation is actually give her value that she's never had, even amongst her own people. He values her. He he saves her. He humanizes her. And then he sends her out and says, hey, I've given you the identity you were created for. It's not about your people or how people perceive you. I've given you a place. I'm inviting you. And if you remember his conversation, he's telling her about where the temple is. He's inviting her into the community that she was created for. And then he sends her out on the mission. She goes into Samaria. And many people come to faith by God using her to take his gospel truth. She finds all of that in Christ. We can also talk about the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus was at work in his life, and he does work through the Spirit in the life of believers today to eradicate racial lines and bring healing and unity and oneness in them. Now, listen, I know we don't like to talk about that. Like I I know none of all of us are very aware of what's happening in our culture right now. But I know that many of us find it very uncomfortable. That's one of the reasons we're going to keep talking about it. But, but one of the things is, I know, and basically we're just talking about it because it's right here in Scripture. But I know we don't like to talk about race. I know we don't like to talk about money. I know we don't talk, like to talk about evangelism. And this text talks about evangelism and race. 
And so I might as well just add money. I encourage all of you to give faithfully to the call of the church so that we can be about the mission of God, all right? Let's just offend in every single way that we can. But basically, we have a hard time with it, and we have a hard time with things that we struggle to understand. But the gospel has the power to soften our hearts in humility and to listen and to learn and not to just cancel out and just to dismiss but to seek to bring healing to every brokenness, not just racial, but in marriages and addiction and, and identity crisis and, and everything that we face. But one of the reasons that we keep leaning into this is, A, it's happening. B, it's in the text. Uh, that's A. B, it's happening. And C, I know that we struggle with it. Some, some research just came out, stats from just this year in Pew Research, basically stating that the African-American people, seven out of ten of them, believe that pastors and churches should talk about how the gospel affects racial tension. While almost seven out of ten white evangelicals believe that racial talk has no place in the church at all. Forty percent do not want of, of white evangelicals do not want to hear their pastor ever talk about the gospel and race. And only 35% of white evangelicals ha have said that they have any feeling of responsibility to help any kind of racial tension that they come across in their, in their communities. So I know, listen, just by statistics, we don't like to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. Some of you probably are saying, I'm never coming back. But it's in the text, and the gospel eradicates everything that builds pride and everything that we find ourselves on in, in, in our accomplishments and in our ethnicity and our culture and our heritage and our names and our power and our glory. Because that's all the throne of man. And it brings fear. And it brings hate. And the gospel addresses that in every single way and calls us to look upon the throne of God and says, in the gospel, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but we are all made the family of God, one in him. And in that, all being created in his image by knowing one another, listening to other, other understanding one another, having community and relationships with one another, we actually get a fuller picture of the God that we are created to glory and find joy in, in doing that. Now, we understand that in everything else in our lives. We love to travel to different cultures and see different places than where we live. We love to go to the zoo and see different animals. We don't just hang out at the one little place and look at one little animal all day because we love the diversity that God has created of, of places and mountains and oceans and rivers and seas and, 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 and lakes and ponds and, and all of the different animals. And he also created us in humanity to look different, to reveal him in a different way. And there is something about human flourishing that is dependent on the unity and diversity around Christ. And if we're missing it, then we're missing a part of what God is calling us to. And therefore, we're missing a part of the glory we're to give to him and that we can see of him. And therefore, we're missing a part of our joy. So it's very important. And remember who's doing this. This is Philip. This is not a pastor. He's just a church guy. Because as we talked about last week, God calls every single one of us to the ministry in the gospel. He pays some of us through the church to minister to the church and to train the church. He pays some of us through other organizations to be on his mission. I often say that's, the, that's God's way of sticking it to the man. He's giving you a paycheck through somebody who might not even believe in him to be on mission for them to know him. And that's just how God works. But he calls every single one of us on his mission in both word and deed. 
So, so we don't need to be confused here, I said, by the word preaching or the word uh, proclaiming. He's talking about, here's the other word we don't like, evangelism. And it's not a dirty, scary word. I don't have time to go super deep into it because I know I need to wrap up like right now. But, but he's not talking about this scary idea of, of having some kind of uh, program that we have to be a part of or some kind of track that we have to read through or, or palm sweaty presentation that we have to walk across the room and give to somebody. Philip is just naturally going about his life in Samaria and he is proclaiming in word and deed who God is and where he finds his identity. And as people get to know him, they're getting to know Christ and people are attracted to what he's doing. They're attracted to the reality that a Jewish man would go into Samaria and actually love and care for people. So they desire to hear what he has to say. He's just being intentional, and that's what we're called to do. That's the rhythm of the New Testament church and the evangelism that they show. The mission belongs to all of us, and the Spirit gives us the power and the words to see the movement of God amongst all people. So don't miss that. As you're going where, to your workplace, just live intentionally in the identity that Christ has given you. As you are in your neighborhood, live intentionally. This is what shapes us here at Redemptional Church and why we constantly talk about where you live, work, and play. Because the movement of God isn't going to happen from a platform or some church strategy. It's going to happen from the people of God being on the mission where God has placed them. He's put every single one of you in the job and in the neighborhood and and with the hobbies that you have to, to see a movement of God in those places for people to come to know him. And he calls you to live out that identity in word and in deed. You're sent out. You're scattered to fertilize, to see fruit, to see growth. And look what happens when that happens. Verse 8, the whole city has joy. Now, let me just say this, that, that this is a major question that we ask ourselves here at Redemption Hill Church. How do we set up a church now and how do we begin to see God use us as we grow that will become a church family that brings joy to the city? Part of that for us is collaboration because we can do it a whole lot faster than we can do it by ourselves to bring the gospel truth and joy to a whole city even when people don't agree with us. And I want you to think about this. If for some reason, here's how I think about it. If for some reason the church just disappeared overnight, I want the community around us to mourn the reality that we are gone, even if they don't agree with us. Because of the way that we love them, because of the way that we care for our schools, because of the way that we care for our orphans, because of the the needs that we see in our city that we bring gospel redemption to. And if we were to disappear, the people would mourn because they're going, man, we might have to raise taxes now. We might have to create some other organizations to do what the church was doing out of grace and love for their community. That's a church that didn't just gather on Sunday and send out mailers for Easter. They actually cared for the community. And and listen, laws and systems, they're needed and they're great, and we need reform where they don't work, but the church has the power of the Spirit to change and transform every problem at the foundational level of the heart. And that's what we're called to. And I would challenge you to think that way individually as well. Think of this. If I left my job or I moved to a different neighborhood, if I would my coworkers and my neighbors think to themselves, I'm actually mourning the fact that they're leaving, not just because they were a cool guy who waved to me and actually said, hey, cut my grass a couple of times, but they actually loved me and brought joy to my life and, and peace to my life and compassion to my life. And they cared about me in a deeper way than sometimes even my family cared about me. We want to be a people that bring joy to our city because we serve the God of joy. 
And listen, the church is, is all of us, and all of us need to be on that mission. Now, I very quickly, in like 60 seconds, need to tell you about Simon. All right, verses 9 through 24. Simon is a music, uh, magician. He does magic. Now, this isn't like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. This is astronomy and mathematics and science. He's adding all these things in. Most of them in this day were also really good at sleight of hand. So they would do some tricks, and then they would kind of try to predict your future. And, and some of them were really, really good at this. Okay, And Simon apparently is really, really good. He's a big deal in the community. And so he calls himself great, and other people start calling him great and well as well. In fact, Later on in church history, we read from Justin the Martyr that he became so great in the eyes of his people that he actually had a statue made for him in Rome that said, Simon, the holy God. He's, he's attributed to a cult that came out, and a lot of people attribute Gnosticism to him that, uh, uh, for his beliefs, and, but that's, that's just what's written in church history. We don't actually have that throughout history, but several church fathers wrote about that. But here's what all the people think. Here's a great guy because of the magic that he does. And so he sees uh, Philip come in and, and Philip bringing in word and indeed the gospel truth and redemption to the community. He goes, this is cool. Like I need, to, I need these, the, these magic tricks in my bag of tricks. This is going to make my magic show so much better. This is going to make me my name so much greater. This is going to gain me so much more money in the community. And he sees all of these people coming to faith. But remember when I said that the Holy Spirit wasn't coming upon them? And so Peter and, and John actually come. They hear of what God is doing in Samaria. And they're like, are you serious? Samaritans are being saved? And so they come to Samaria and they lay their hands on them as they see what God is doing. And the Holy Spirit comes. Now what's happening here is very, very important. Now, when we place our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit immediately comes and lives and dwells in us. But in the early church, the Samaritans were not a part of the Jerusalem church, and the church had only thrived in Jerusalem, mostly amongst Israelites and the Jewish people. And so now that Samaritans are coming to faith who are outside of everyone's social bubble. See, God's just breaking everything immediately off the bat. He says, I need this to be authenticated by the apostles who I authenticated. And what we have here are the apostles going and saying, God is actually working amongst all people. And they're being brought into the actual family. And we have unity. There's not junior varsity church in Samaria and varsity church in Jerusalem. But God is over all of his people and all of them are one in him. And what we have here is a second Pentecost. Most scholars believe that the Spirit came down just like he did on the day of Pentecost. There was this crazy moment of wind and rushing and speaking in different languages and all of these things. And Simon sees that and he goes, wow, I need that. But he totally misses the gospel truth and he tries to purchase it for himself. And Peter calls him out. See, basically, he's, he's kind of related to the one who just believes and he's religious or she's religious and she kind of goes with the church. Simon follows Peter around. And so they're kind of a part of the religious kind of thing, but they're rejecting the gospel truth in religion. So they're not doubling down on self and rejecting and hating, but they're just kind of getting really close without actually giving their life to anything. Because Simon's desire is the same as, as Saul's. My glory, my throne, my kingdom, but I'll use God to do it. Paul, Saul rejects God and says, I'll do it on my own. But both of them are rejections of the gospel. And Peter says, you need to repent. And he gives them a chance and he demonstrates that he has no relationship with God. He's like, can you pray for me? Like, I can't pray for myself. I have no connection to God. 
Church, listen to me. Not everybody will reject God like Saul. Some will reject like Simon. And that's a warning to us. That's a warning to the people who get close to God but not transformed by God. That like the things that he does and likes the things that he says, but try to use them for their own purpose and not for God's name and glory. You won't have joy. You won't have satisfaction. You won't have salvation in that. And so this morning, some of us, we need to hear and we need to stop pushing against God like Saul. And we need to repent and surrender and find salvation. Some of us need to put our religious belief and identity and tradition and the benefit we think we find out of that to the side for true belief and place our faith in Christ. And for those of us who believe we need in the power of the Holy Spirit to allow the gospel to excite us to do what the apostles do here. That everywhere that we go, verse 25, as they're going, they're excited at what, what, what God is doing. And in word and in deed, they're proclaiming the gospel truth and people are coming to faith. This is what we're called to do as a church.